Welcome to Carl Chin's Birmingham, brought to you by History West Midlands On Air. Well-known broadcaster and author, Professor Carl Chin, returns to the airwaves to honour the working people, some famous but mostly forgotten, who shaped the history of Birmingham. He tells their stories as only he can, applauding their courage in adversity while recognising that there were sinners as well as saints. In this programme, Carl joins students from Perry Beaches 2 Free School to discover how Christmas was celebrated in Birmingham. You are about to meet not only Charles Dickens in the town hall, but also the carol-singing children of the poorest back-to-backs, and even Mr Holly in the city's most famous store. that famous Christmas carol, O Come All Ye Faithful, was written in Latin in the 18th century. It was called Adeste Fideles, meaning Come Faithful People, and the most popular translation into English is by Frederick Oakley, who had strong connections with the West Midlands. Born in Shrewsbury, he became prebendary, a senior clergyman at Litchfield Cathedral. Oakley's translation of 1841 began with the words, Ye Faithful, Approach Ye. It quickly became popular. Four years later, he converted to Catholicism, following John Henry Newman, who was to be so associated with Birmingham at the Oratory in Edgbaston. Oakley then changed the opening lines to, O come all ye faithful, joyfully triumphant. The popularity of this carol coincided with the rise of what we know today as the Dickensian Christmas. A Christmas of holly and ivy, lanterns and stagecoaches, the singing of carols and the giving of presents, plum pudding and mulled wine, Christmas trees and Christmas cards, yule logs and mistletoe, snow and Father Christmas, and above all, family gatherings and goodwill to all men. That concept of the traditional Christmas owes so much to one man, Charles Dickens and his short book, A Christmas Carol. First published in December 1843, just two years after Oakley translated Adeste Fidelis, it tells the story of a bitter and cheerless old miser named Ebenezer Scrooge, whose life is dominated by his love of money 
and his unwillingness to spend it, even at Christmas. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy with all, and he could hear the people in the court outside go wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the pavement stones to warm them. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. It had not been light all day, and candles were flaring in the windows of the neighbouring offices like ruddy smears upon the palpable brown air. The fog came pouring in into every chink and keyhole and was so dense without that although the court was of the narrowest, the houses opposite were mere phantoms. To see the dingy cloud come drooping down, obscuring everything, one might have thought that nature lived hard by and was brewing on a large scale. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open, that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond, a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal, but he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room, and so surely as the clerk came in with a shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of a strong imagination, he failed. A Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you! cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew, who came upon him so quickly that this was the first intimation he had of his approach. Bah! said Scrooge. Humbug! He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow, his face was ruddy and handsome, his eyes sparkled and his breath smoked again. Christmas a humbug, Uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I am sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas! What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned the nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Scrooge, having no better answer ready on the spur of the moment, said, Bah! again, and followed it up with, Humbug! Don't be cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can it be? returned the uncle. When I live in a world of fools, Merry Christmas! Out upon Merry Christmas! What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older, but not an hour richer. A time for balancing your books and having every item in them for a round dozen of months presented dead against you. If I could work my will, said Scrooge indignantly, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of olive for his heart he should. Ten years after A Christmas Carol was published, Dickens gave his very first public readings here at Birmingham in the town hall over three nights at Christmas time. It surprises many to learn that this acclaimed novelist did so, given that Dickens is so bonded with London through his compelling stories and fascinating characters. But Dickens had a deep and long-standing connection with our city, one which he held dear. His first book, The Pickwick Papers, was published in 1837, the same year, of course, when Queen Victoria came to the throne, and it set Dickens on the path of literary acclaim. It included a brief account of Sam Weller and Mr Pickwick arriving in Birmingham, and it captured the essence of our town, the clamour of manufacture. It was still dark as the fictional pair came along the old road from Bristol in a stagecoach. As they did so, paths were covered with cinders and brick dust. Furnace fires glowed a deep red in the distance. Volumes of dense smoke issued from high toppling chimneys and blackened and obscured everything around. Distant lights glared and ponderous wagons toiled along the road, laden with clashing rods of iron 
or else were piled with heavy goods. All these features betokened their rapid approach to the great working town of Birmingham. Then, as Pickwick and Weller entered the rombustuous town, Dickens powerfully grasped the dynamism and excitement that was Birmingham in a most notable paragraph. As they rattled through the narrow thoroughfares leading to the heart of the turmoil, the sights and sounds of earnest occupation struck more forcibly on the senses. The hum of labour resounded from every house. Light gleamed from the long casement windows in the attic stories, and the whirl of wheels and noise of machinery shook the trembling walls. The fires whose lurid, sullen light had been visible for miles, blazed fiercely up in the great works and factories of the town. The din of hammers, the rushing of steam, and the dead, heavy clanking of engines was the harsh music which arose from every quarter. Short as it is, yet is this one of the most compelling and insightful descriptions of Birmingham as it thrust itself onto the world stage as the city of a thousand trades. Dickens himself made plain his fondness for Birmingham on several occasions. On February the 28th, 1844, he gave a speech in the town. He declared that Birmingham is, in my mind, and in the minds of most men, associated with many giants. And he went on to praise the public spirit of the town, the name and fame of its capitalists and working men, the greatness and importance of its merchants and manufacturers, its inventions, which are constantly in progress and the skill and intelligence of its artisans, which are daily developed. A passionate supporter of education and of extending educational opportunity to working men, Dickens returned to Birmingham in December 1853 for those three memorable nights of seasonal readings at the Town Hall. He did so to raise funds for the Birmingham and Midland Institute. A few days later, on Monday the 2nd of January 1854, Aris's Birmingham Gazette reported that... The first of the readings generously given by Mr Charles Dickens on behalf of the Birmingham and Midland Institute took place on Tuesday evening, December the 27th, 1853, at the Birmingham Town Hall, where, notwithstanding the inclemency of the weather, nearly 2,000 persons had assembled. The work selected was The Christmas Carol. The high mimetic powers possessed by Mr Dickens enabled him to personate with remarkable force the various characters of the story, and with admirable skill, to pass rapidly from the hard, unbelieving Scrooge to trusting and thankful Bob Cratchit, and from the genial fullness of Scrooge's nephew to the hideous mirth of the party assembled in Old Joe the Ragshop Keeper's parlour. The reading occupied more than three hours, but so interested were the audience that only one or two left the hall previously to its termination, and the loud and frequent bursts of applause attested the successful discharge of the reader's arduous task. On Thursday evening, Mr Dickens read The Cricket on the Hearth. The hall was again well ruled, and the tale, though deficient in dramatic interest of the carol, was listened to with attention and rewarded with repeated applause. On Friday evening, The Christmas Carol was read a second time to a large assemblage of workpeople, for whom, at Mr Dickens' special request, the major part of the vast edifice was reserved. Before commencing the tale, Mr Dickens delivered the following brief address, almost every sentence of which was received with loudly expressed applause. My good friends, when I first imparted to the committee of the projected institute my particular wish that on one of the evenings of my readings here the main body of my audience should be composed of working men and their families, I was animated by two desires. First, 
by the wish to have the great pleasure of meeting you face to face at this Christmas time and accompany you myself through one of my little Christmas books and second by the wish to have an opportunity of stating publicly in your presence and in the presence of the committee my earnest hope that the Institute will from the beginning recognise one great principle strong in reason and justice which I believe to be essential to the very life of such an institution it is that the working man shall from the first and to the last have a share in the management of an institution which is designed for his benefit and which calls itself by his name. You can just imagine the thrill of working class people knowing that the great Charles Dickens had insisted that one night of his readings should be for their benefit. But of course, Dickens was the people's writer. Had he not also been poor? Had he not also endured hard times? Had he not also had to suffer indignities because his father had served time in a debtor's jail? And had he not also laboured long in bad conditions for little money? Of course he had. No wonder then that on that evening of the 30th December 1853, the people of Birmingham came in their hundreds upon hundreds to listen to him. It was a great gathering of dark figures, wrapped up tightly in threadbare big coats and short mufflers and wearing a motley assortment of hats. Despite the cold, they queued patiently and expectantly to enter the town hall, rubbing their hands for warmth and hopping up and down to keep the blood circulating in their feet. After handing over sixpence to get in, they headed inside. With the great hall filled with more than 2,000 folk, a hush spread across the crowd. Stretching their heads forwards and lifting their eyes upwards, they fixed their gazes onto the stage. And then on walked this small, balding man. His groomed black beard caught the eyes, and from there the look shifted swiftly to a book which he had tucked beneath one arm. The assembly began to applaud, and Dickens made a small bow, composed himself, looked around, and waited for the clapping to fade. Then he started to read. Three hours later, he approached the end. Bob Cratchit, the put-upon clerk of Scrooge, has led a miserable life at work. But now he's to be surprised by a remarkable change in the attitude of his employer. But he was early at the office next morning. Oh, he was early there. If only he could be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late. That was the thing he'd set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. He was a full 18 minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open, that he might see him come into the tank. His hat was off before he opened the door, his comforter too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen, as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello, growled Scrooge, in his accustomed voice, as near as he could feign it. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir, said Bob. I'm beyond my time. You are, repeated Scrooge. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you please. It's only once a year, sir, pleaded Bob, appearing from the tank. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. No, I'll tell you what, my friend, said Scrooge. I'm not going to stand this sort of thing any longer. And therefore, he continued, leaping from his stall, and giving Bob such a dig in the waistcoat that he staggered back into the tank again. And therefore, I'm about to raise your salary. Bob trembled and got a little nearer to the ruler. He had a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him and calling to the people in the court for help in a straight waistcoat. A Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge, with an earnestness that could not be mistaken as he clapped him on the back. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavour to assist your struggling family. 
and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop bub. Make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. At the close of the reading, Dickens received a vote of thanks. It was accompanied by loud applause, in the midst of which a working man shouted out, Three cheers for Mr Dickens and three times three! His call was heeded with tremendous enthusiasm as the applause rent the room. Then, so soon as it quietened, Dickens grasped hold of the spirits of the working men and women who had gathered to arc at their writer, the people's author, and he stated simply, I am truly and sincerely interested in you. He finished with the meaningful words, Any little service I have rendered to you, I have freely rendered from my heart. A Dickensian Christmas, of course, drew together old traditions and new, such as the decking out of Christmas trees and the giving of Christmas cards. But for many decades, such things remained well out of the reach of the poor of Birmingham, as Kathleen Dayas recalled in her compelling book, Her People. Kathleen really knew what it was to rough it. One of the youngest in a large and poor family, she grew up in a yard of back-to-backs in Camden Street on the edge of the jewellery quarter. Here, in one of the most prosperous cities of one of the wealthiest countries in the world, the local folk had to collar and scratch for everything and anything they had. Like Kathleen's dad, many of the chaps were out of work and were on the parish, but what they received was insufficient to feed growing children, let alone their parents as well. Poverty was a life of hard knocks. Kathleen and her pals knew what it was like to be clammed and to stand outside the factory gates begging for a piece off the workers when they knocked off. And they knew what it was like to live in tiny houses that were badly built and to have to share in sanitary dry pan closets. But the life that Kathleen and her pals lived wasn't one of unremitting unhappiness. They had their laughs, they played their games, they whistled and they sang, and they made the best of the bed that they lay on, especially at Christmas. Kathleen remembered the preparations for one Christmas in particular, that of 1911. The table was screwed with coloured paper, which Mum had left to make our paper trimmings that night. We cut them all into loops, and Lisa made the paste with flour and water. If this failed, Frankie said he would get a tin of condensed milk to mix it. Frankie took a little, not enough for Mum to notice. And it was nice to lick our fingers each time we stuck loop inside another, and so we made the decorations for the wall and pictures. We didn't have a real Christmas tree. We had to beg two wooden hoops off a cheese tub from the grocers. We fitted these one inside the other and covered them with different coloured tissue and creep paper. When Dad came home, he said we'd done a good job and helped us hang the streamers across the room, high up above the clothesline, and to let people see we had some sort of tree. The paper Christmas tree was hung in the window from a nail. Every time we had a farthing or halfpenny given us for running errands, we brought white sugar, mites, and little chocolate Father Christmases, coloured balls and tinsel, or any little thing we could afford. After we trimmed up the room, Dad gave us a penny each to buy extra gifts for the tree. Then, after drinking our coca, we went off to bed happy and contented, knowing we had some money to spend and that we were going cow singing again to earn some more. When it was dark the next night, we got ready to go out to continue our caroling. Mum watched us with keen eyes as we donned our coats and scarves. 
And where do you think you three are going this time of night? She asked sternly. We're going cow singing, Frank replied defiantly. That's all right, Dad said, but be back in bed before we get home. Yes, Dad, we replied in unison. We ran out and turned up the street towards the Georgian Dragon. I was glad Mum and Dad hadn't asked what part we were going to because this street was forbidden territory. When we arrived, Lisa and I started Hark, the Herald Angel sing again, but we only got as far as Hark when I felt a huge thump on my back. Don't sing that one, Frankie said. Let's sing Noel. Half pennies and pennies came flying through the door. When I picked them up, I counted ten pence, her penny in all. We showed our gratitude by singing it again, only louder. Despite the wealth of England, the hardships of poor children improved little over the next few decades, as Helen Butcher, niece Smith, recounted in her insightful book, The Treacle Stick. She was born in 1917 at 3 back of 5 Shipcut Street, near the junction with Broad Street. Known locally as the Big Yard, its back-to-backs were attic high, with a single ground-floor room, a bedroom and an attic. Outside in the shared yard was a single water tap, which supplied the Smiths and eight other families. There were also communal toilets, the Miskins, dustbins, and the Brewers, the washhouse. Helen recalled that when the soft, the drain, in the yard was blocked, the water would seep into their cellar. And then, soon, the damp would rise up the walls and the snails would follow the black bats, beetles. As a result, food was kept in a cupboard which was hung in the living room. As in all back-to-backs, Helen recalled, everything happened in our ground-floor living room. Cooking, eating, washing. We had a wooden settle, which we called the squab, two chairs and a wall fitment of two or three shelves over a cupboard, which was screened off by a curtain. A rag rug covered some of the floor. These were made from miscellaneous scraps of material sewn onto a sack, so they were very colourful and practically indestructible. They also held an amazing amount of dust. There was plenty of that from the coal fire and it weighed a ton when you tried to shake them off the rag rug. Helen's mother had 11 children, of whom only three survived. Her father died when she was just seven. After 21 years' service to his country in the army, his hard-earned pension died with him and his wife was left without any means. She had three children to feed and clothe and there was not yet a widow's pension. So... Mrs Smith had to apply to the Board of Guardians. Well-fed, well-dressed ladies and gentlemen who lived in Edgebaston, Barnt Green or Arban. These guardians had the power to dictate your destiny. They decided how much it would take to keep you in the poverty you were used to. Going on the parish, or on the treacle stick as it was popularly known, was demoralising and degrading. According to Helen, the guardians were part of the lofty and inaccessible system by which they ruled our lives, moralising, capricious and cruel. Claimants like Helen's mum had no rights. Three comfortable, worthy, middle-class people sat in judgment and you knew their power. They could feed or starve you. And if and when you were assessed as worthy of relief, then you were allocated a weekly sum of money that had to be taken in gratitude and humility, with many scrapings of feet on the doormat before and after the Inquisition. Such money had to be spent wisely. And as Helen remarked with biting sarcasm, not squandered on luxury items like a constant fire in the grate, clothes, shoes on your feet all year round, and a good hot dinner every day, To make sure that you were obeying all the rules and not bringing in money from other sources, you were regularly fetched back before the guardians to be interrogated about your circumstances by stern, well-fed faces. 
Indignity after indignity was heaped upon you, like presenting your grocery card to the shop assistants who could only give you the items stated. In her old age, Helen still felt the shame searing through her at the bitter memory of how, as a child, she had handed over a card with the other people in the shop looking on and knowing that she was on the parish. Helen wanted to get out as fast as she could. Yet, for all their hardships, the poor of Shipcut Street were not slumped in despondency and despair. It was a vibrant, noisy and boisterous place. Hawkers called out their wares. Coleman cried, Coal! Coal! Rag and Bowman blew their trumpets. The newspaper seller cried out, Spatchy mail! Spatchy mail! And on Sunday, the comic man called Comic Cuts, Funny Wonder, Butterfly, Jester, Chips. And Christmas remained a time when even the poorest strove to brighten up their lives. Though still a youngster of 11, that's what Helen did one Christmas in the 1920s when she was determined that she, her younger sister and her mum would have a good time. One year, I joined the Christmas club run by Oldham's, the local general store, and put into it the pennies and half pences I was given by the neighbours running errands. I was going to buy our Christmas day tea. It must have taken months for me to save enough money, but when the time came, there was between one shilling and six pence and two shillings. I splashed out on a tin of pineapple chunks, some real cream, which I didn't like at all, and some butter, which was a luxury. Usually we had margarine or magian on our bread, and if we had jam, the magian was left off. I think I had some tea because you could get small quantities at these shops in areas where people could not afford to buy half pounds. All this was used for one meal between the three of us, Mother Flory and me. I also brought a special present to put in Flory's Christmas stocking, a pillowcase which was never more than half full. Playing Father Christmas to her was playing acting which I enjoyed sharing a closely guarded secret known only to Father Christmas himself or in our house herself. Flory's presence that year of 1928 was a handbag full of sweets. What a treat she had. The bag was pouch-shaped and hung from a cord. It was not made from rich materials such as velvet or silk and it did not shine or glitter. It was made of tin, but to Flory it was wonderful and she loved it. A Christmas present to remember. I brought a similar bag for my school friend Lizzie Hendy, who died about age 14. Christmas Day would be bleak for some children, no different from any other day for them. There was no waking up at dawn to empty their pillowcase shouting, he's been mum and look what he's brought me. The usual presents consisted of a blood orange and a russet apple, a new penny and a few mixed nuts. Why a blood orange and a russet apple, I don't know, but they were in season and very welcome. Born in 1920 in a back street in Neachels, Jack Francis also grew up poor, but he also shared happy memories of Christmas as he remembered his book, Pawn Shops and Lard. He was one of eight living in a small, two-bedroomed back-to-back. All the children, including the teenagers, slept in two beds in the attic. The bedclothes were one sheet and a pile of bug-infested old coats. There was no electricity, gas or even water in the house and the attic was lit by just one candle. 
However, as Jack emphasises, this did not mean that my mother, brothers and sisters were dirty. On the contrary, they were scrupulously clean and would scrub the bare boards of the attic and bedroom together with the quarry tile floor of the living room. In fact, the bare wooden table in the living room was as white as snow through continual scrubbing. You could see a face in the polished cast iron fireplace. Jack's father was unemployed, but always managed to get his beer. And even though he was not cruel to the kids, Jack and his siblings used to dread his drunken footsteps coming up the path. They dreaded it because they knew there would be a fight or a row with their mum soon after. It was Jack's mother who kept them together by bringing in what money she could through washing and pawning everybody's and anybody's washing. Yet for all the bleakness of their lives, especially in winter, Jack was still excited on Christmas Eve, as he recalled of that night in 1929. It's about 8pm on Christmas Eve and all us kids are sitting with our hands in our laps, not saying a word and looking as though butter wouldn't melt in our mouths. The truth is we can't get to bed quick enough to hang our stockings up, hoping Father Christmas would come. One of us makes a move to get undressed and my mother says, it's no good hanging up your stockings, there ain't nothing. We laid awake for what seemed hours and hours, hoping that she did not mean what she said. I was the first awake on Christmas Day. And when I saw my bulging stocking, I shouted, He's been, he's been. It's just like sounding the bugle of a cavalry charge, and all us younger ones have gone berserk. I, for one, got an apple, an orange and some nuts, a bar of chocolate, a new penny, and a small tin penny motor car. It's going to be a fantastic Christmas day. Most Christmases were the same, not only for us, but for all the poor kids. And when our mother said, There ain't nothing, Little did we know how near the truth this was for many Christmases. When all the kids at school and in the street are talking about hanging their stockings up and your mother tells you there ain't nothing, this, with other setbacks, must leave a deep-rooted effect for years to come. By the 1950s and 1960s, Father Christmas didn't just come down the chimney at your house to fill the stocking at the end of the bed. He also came to town, and you could go to meet him. The lead up to that big event was heralded when we were given an advent calendar on December the 1st. Do you remember? Each day we'd get up, open a door and take out the chocolate, looking forward with anticipation to reaching December the 25th, Christmas Day. By the middle of the month, our excitement was growing. It was added to by the decorating of our classroom at school, the making of Christmas cards with glitter and cotton wool for family and friends and the preparations for the nativity play. Somewhere in the midst of all this came the most important night of all in the build-up to Christmas. The visit to the only true Father Christmas in the world, the Father Christmas at Lewis's. For me and our kid, and I'm sure for every other young Brummie, it was as if Lewis's Father Christmas had always been there. Our mums and dads had been to see him, just like us, and he had to be the real thing. Do you remember that one dark afternoon, after getting home from school, at last Mum would say... We're going uptown to see him later. Then it was off to the minories to join the seemingly endless queue of expectant children with their mums and dads. We seemed to spend forever waiting patiently to go slowly, so slowly, up flight after flight of the stairs. Each time we reached a landing, we'd lift our little heads and almost plaintively ask, when will we see you, Mum? Soon, our mums always replied, then, at last, we reached the floor where Father Christmas and Uncle Holly held sway and now we started to crane our necks to see down the line to where he sat in splendour. Eventually, the waiting was over and we sat on his lap. He asked us if we'd been good and, of course, we had all the year round, hadn't we? Then he asked us what we wanted for Christmas and we told him. 
and next it was perhaps a photo and off to the tub for a dip in for a present. Afterwards, we'd always be fascinated by the stillness around Old Square and Corporation Street and by how any noise would seem to reverberate and cause thousands upon thousands of starlings to flock into the sky. That was it. Christmas really was on its way. Now was the time for decorating the house with streamers and cards, mistletoe and ivy, putting the tree up and getting ready for the big night when he'd come. Each year, we swore we'd stay awake and see him, but our mums were right. Somehow Father Christmas's elves always came around to sprinkle sleeping dust in our eyes, and no matter how hard we tried, we'd drop off, only to awake very early, too early, and be told, no, he hasn't been yet. But our excitement could not be quashed, and at last our mums and dads would let us run downstairs, where we'd gleefully see a half-eaten mince pie and a partly drunk glass of beer to show, yes, he had been. Now we could open our presents and play with them avidly until told to get washed because the bird was ready and Christmas dinner was about to be served. And yet, throughout that day, some our relatives would find time to pop in and space would always be found for an exchange of greetings, a quick chat, a beer or a sherry. And after Christmas dinner came another highlight of the day, the Queen's speech. Our dad always made a stand to attention in front of the TV when the national anthem was played. And although we did watch programmes... The television did not seem to dominate the day because we also played card games like Pontoon and Newmarket and board games such as Monopoly. The day would slowly take its course until Dad said that, well, you've stopped up late enough. It's time now to go up the Wooden Hill to Snoresville. Mind you, there was lots to look forward to on Boxing Day with a trip down the match and a family gathering on the evening. And then that was it for another year. For the next day, Christmas in them days was over. Any road up. Christmases are coming and the goose is getting fat. Please to put a penny in the old man's hat. If you haven't got a penny, a halfpenny will do. And if you haven't got a halfpenny, well, God bless you. Merry Christmas to each and all. Carl Chin's Birmingham is a History West Midlands production. For more information, visit the website at www.historywm.com.
Kommen.